right, we're at the home stretch of the book of Romans. We have taken the entire summer to go through this very big, detailed book that is, in my mind, the cornerstone of the New Testament, talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and all that means to us, particularly in a contentious church. The church at Rome was fighting each other fiercely, absolutely fiercely. And so the Apostle Paul is sharing with them in great detail, especially in Romans chapters one through eight, the good news of God's grace. And once we receive God's grace, then we can pass it on to our neighbor, right? So even if we disagree, we can be a gracious church and a unified church. And that's what the book of Romans is all about. Now, does it always work that a church can be unified that disagrees, that comes from different backgrounds, different cultures, different perspectives? Can a church actually be together as Jesus prayed in perfect unity despite our disagreements? And as we've been learning through the summer, the church at Rome had some fierce disagreements. There was the Jewish cultured Christians who held to their Jewish scripture, the Old Testament, a lot of the rules and regulations and traditions that are very beautiful to them. But then in the same church, there are Roman cultured Christians. And these are people who come from pagan backgrounds and gluttony, and there are moral things that are questionable there, and and they're more free, and they're very powerful, and they were in the same church. So can Jewish cultured Christians and Roman cultured Christians coexist in the same church? And that was questionable because they were fighting. They were fighting fiercely. They were fighting so fiercely that the apostle Paul, who is the apostle to the, to to really the, the whole of the Roman empire, had to step in and say, guys, stop fighting. Now he never met them. He never went there, but he was so aware of their fighting, their infighting, that he had to step in, kind of like a, a referee does in, in, in a fight, right? So it's NFL season. We're going to see some of this action going on. And uh, the refs got to step right in there. They don't have pads. They don't have helmets. So God bless the referees trying to break up fights. This is the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. <laughs> Hebrews, listen, I know you're passionate about your traditions. And Romans, you're passionate about your, your, your Greco-Roman culture. And I know there's not a lot that is binding you together here in this church But look to Jesus, look to his grace and find a way not only for you two to be loved by God, but find a way to love each other. Is it possible? It's hard to say, but that's the effort. That's the effort of Romans chapter 14. The whole chapter is about how these two factions can get along. Here's what he says in Romans 14, 10. Why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? This was their lifestyle. The, the, the Jewish people who loved their laws and their traditions and their regulations were looking down in condemnation upon the Roman cultured people. And the Roman cultured people were tired of getting harassed and they're tired of getting judged and looked at their way of life as kind of this old school, irrelevant thing. And they were looking down on them. So the apostle Paul steps in and says, enough is enough. You've got to stop fighting. Now, the funny thing that's not so funny is that here we are 2,000 years ago. We've had the book of Romans for 2,000 years, and yet today in America, the church is still fighting. And today in America, the church is still fighting about the same things. The same things. It's almost as though we haven't learned anything in 2,000 years. So I'm going to cast the modern-day Christian conflicts in language that we'll understand. It's language that tends to get a little reaction from folks. I'm gonna use this language for two more minutes and then I'm gonna abandon it. So this is two minutes of using this language and then we'll move on. But we have to use the language to understand why Romans is so applicable today. There are American Christian conservatives, political and religious conservatives in the Christian church. 
conservatives have a very high view of Scripture, using words about the Bible that typically are words used to describe God himself. Very high view of Scripture. Very opinionated about how the Bible should be studied, kind of verse by verse. Very opinionated about how to honor God. Very opinionated about how to worship God. They have a high concern about sexual morality. This is the American conservative Christian church. On the other hand, in this other tribe is the American church that tends to be more progressive. The American Christian church that tends to be more progressive. They don't necessarily have a traditional religious background. Scripture, according to them, reveals Jesus, but we're not going to use words that are reserved for God to describe the Bible. Uh, They are freer to express the worship of God in different ways, and they're very accepting of other ways that people worship. They are more concerned with loving one another and less concerned with following religious rules and moral norms. So we have the American Christian conservatives and the American Christian progressives, and they are bitterly fighting, bitterly fighting. They are fighting on social media. They are fighting from pulpits. They are fighting in books. They are fighting in conferences and news media. Any platform that will give either the left or the right a voice to attack each other, they will. And oh, by the way, it's a midterm election season. So all that division is just going to go nuts. It's already bubbling up locally. I mean, it's, it's the, the craziness is bubbling up locally already. It has already bubbled over nationally. Conservative American Christian and Christians fighting progressive American Christians. And the things they say to each other and the things they say about each other is awful. I mean, it is awful. So as a result of this division, there's a lot of people on the sidelines going, what is happening here? What is happening in the American church? They are destroying each other. And I think in large part, that's why so many people end up leaving the church. There's a lot of reasons, but a lot of people are leaving the church. I'm going to show you the um, Pew Research Institute, Institute. They keep the definitive stats on the American church. The American church has been roughly 70% of the American population for centuries. 70%. That was all the way up until the year 2000. Right up until 20 years ago, 70% of Americans had an affiliation with a local Christian church. Two years ago, that was 47%, and I guarantee you it's in the low 40s now, if not worse. People are leaving the church like it's on fire, running away, screaming in some part, if not in large part, because we're so bitterly fighting each other. And you know what's happening as a result of this incredible decline of the American Christian church? Do you know what some people think is the solution? Fight harder, get more vicious, attack more vehemently to defend our way. Conservatives and progressives fighting. It's the same thing that was happening in Rome 2,000 years ago. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote this book. Now, I'm going to stop using those words, conservative and progressive. They're just absolute tinderboxes, right? I'm going to use two different words that I think are more helpful and will allow us to maybe calm down, take a breath, and to say, okay, we can have a conversation here. I'm going to use the words traditional and open-minded. Traditional and open-minded. I think when it comes to the church, church life in particular, there are the traditionalists, and then there are those who are open-minded. The traditional people of all ages, I'm not just talking about older folks, We might think traditional means older. That is not the case. Some of the most immovable, rigid people I've ever met in my life are young, right? I was absolutely a fierce traditionalist when I was 17 years old. I knew it all. 
and everybody needed to know all I knew when I was 17 years old, right? So I was more traditional as a 17-year-old than I ever have been in my life, right? So this is not about age. Traditional people are people who prefer keeping the same ideas and the same way of doing things. Traditional people can be very young, they can be very old, and everywhere in between. Traditional people of all ages prefer keeping the same ideas and the same ways of doing things. So some of you might be traditionalists who just don't like change. If you hear a new idea, it's like, I don't know. If something is done a different way, I don't like it. Immediately, it's like, I don't know. I like the way we did it. Is that you? Open-minded people prefer exploring new ideas and new ways of doing things. So if you're a more open-minded person, again, of all ages, whether you're young or old, if you hear a new idea, you go, oh, well, that's intriguing. I haven't heard that quite put that way, but I'm going to be open to it. I'm going to read about it. I'm going to ask some questions. If uh, you go to church and things are done a little differently, you don't hyperventilate in a paper bag, you're like, oh, well, that's interesting. I wonder why they did that. Right? Let me ask some questions. Why did they do it that way? That's could, that could be interesting. Maybe this could be better. I don't know, right? So you're open-minded to things, traditional and open-minded. So ask yourself, which one do you lean towards? Everyone, I think, would lean towards one or the other. You lean more towards the security of keeping things the same. You get a little nervous when things change. Or you might lean more towards open-mindedness. You embrace change. You get excited about change. Which one are you, traditional or open-minded? Now, I'm often asked, uh, where does Rancho fall? Is Rancho more traditional or is Rancho more open-minded? As a church, are we more traditional or open-minded? And people who know or care, you know, might have some different opinions of, uh, about that. I've heard a lot what people say about Rancho. That's like, I don't think that's true, but you know, okay, whatever. Everybody has a perspective. Where is Rancho, more traditional or more open-minded? I'm going to give you a frustrating answer. The answer is that our hope is to become the church that the Apostle Paul intended Rome to be. Rome had traditional people, a bunch of them. They came from the Jewish tradition. They held to their Old Testament Jewish laws, very traditional. And then there were these Roman cultured people who were very open-minded, right? They were exploring new ways of doing things. They were exploring new ideas, exploring uh, you know, new ways to relate to each other, new ways to relate with God. Are we traditional or are we, op we open-minded? What I would hope is that we would become the church that was envisioned in Rome where both could exist. Both could exist. Let me put it this way. The vision for Rome and the vision for Rancho is that we would be a church where both the traditional and the open-minded not only coexist with a side eye, not only tolerate each other through kind of gritted teeth, but accept each other and even celebrate each other, showing off the fullness of Christ. That's the hope. We can applaud that. Is it possible? I don't know. I know it's really difficult. I know it's really exciting. Is it possible? I don't know. That's why we titled the series Better Together, because that's exactly what was envisioned in Rome 2,000 years ago. These two different cultures coming together, side-eyeing each other, gritted teeth. Can we get along? Can we be brothers and sisters in one family of faith? Can we disagree kindly? Can we humbly learn from each other? That's what it means to be better together. Romans 14 gives us the way to do it. Flat out gives us the way to do it. We're going to solve it all today. Romans 14 gives us the way to be better together, to embrace 
two different cultures, two different perspectives, all kinds of backgrounds in one beautiful family of faith. Here we go. Accept one another despite our differences. Accept one another despite our differences. Romans 4.1 just starts with it. Accept other believers. You're fighting, you're hating on each other, but accept each other. And that word accept in the Greek, proslambano, it means to intentionally take as a friend. To take as a friend. That takes work. This isn't become friends with people who are like you. That word is very specific. In, intentionally decide to make a friend. So you may have a whole bunch of friends that you didn't necessarily decide to make. You just were friends from the start. You know, I got a bunch of golfing buddies. If I meet somebody on the driving range, we're friends, period, right? Because we're completely dysfunctionally addicted to this dumb, expensive game, right? But you, you're, there's an immediate camaraderie. And if there's somebody that I meet on the driving range that's about my age, has some kids, and we're married, and we're golfing, I mean, I, I don't have to make a friend, we're just buddies, right? And, and that's just how it goes. Now, if somebody is quite different and doesn't like golf, but likes, I don't know, something else, or worse yet, doesn't like golf, I don't know if we can go any further. I have to intentionally make that friend, right? If somebody is different than me, different likes, different interests, different background, different culture, different views on this or that, politics, religion, whatever it is, now I have to intentionally make a friend. I have to intentionally post Lombano that person. And I have accepted and made friends with a lot of people on this intentional journey, people who are not like me. And there's, there's not a time in my life that has gone by in the last, I'd say, 15, even 20 years where I, I haven't been intentionally trying to make a friend with somebody very unlike me. Most of the time, I'm not going to lie to you and say all the time, but most of the time, it ends up being a wonderful, rich experience. Sometimes it's an absolute train wreck. But the trying to make a friend who's unlike me is so, so powerful. And for those of you who do the same thing, you intentionally try to make friends with people unlike you, you are doing exactly what Romans 14.1 is calling you to do. Intentionally make a friend. What I, I have learned to love, and it's taken a while, is to try to find someone most unlike me and try to make the deepest friends with that person. It's a challenge sometimes because you run up against a lot of things that uh, we just don't agree here, don't agree here. Well, I'm not feeling you there. I'm not feeling you there. But ah, now we can start to really deepen a friendship here and we can learn from each other. It's a powerful thing. There's a little qualifier here in Romans 14.1 that I just conveniently skipped. Romans 14.1, accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Now, who is weak in faith? Who are the ones that the Apostle Paul is talking about here? All of you are saying, well, not me, bro. They are weak in faith. Whoever's not like me is weak in faith. Now, hold on a second. I'm gonna go down a little road here. This might sound offensive to some of you, but just stick with me here. The Apostle Paul tells us who are the weak ones in faith. He flat says it. The weak ones in faith are the ones that argue about what's right and wrong. Those are the weak ones. Always arguing about what's right and wrong. They're always trying to decide, okay, well, let's talk about what's sin and what's not, what's moral and what's immoral. What are the right and wrong ways to worship? What are the right and wrong ways to interpret the Bible? What are the right and wrong things to believe about God? They're always focused on the right and wrong things all the time. They wanna get in little arguments about this or that, and they're trying to get to a list that they're comfortable with, the list of things that I believe that I'm comfortable with. Give me the list of things that are right and wrong to believe. Give me the list of things that are right and wrong to do, right? 
Those who are, who are weaker in the faith need the list of things because if they have the list of things, ah, that makes me comfortable. The list of things to believe, we agree, oh, we're, we're, we're buddies. The list of things that are sin and not, ah, now, okay, I got something to grab onto. It's not enough to just have a simple faith in God through Jesus Christ. It's not enough to just have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, by grace. No, I have to have something in addition to that. I need my list of what's right and wrong. What's right and wrong to believe, what's right and wrong in terms of behavior and sin. It's just always arguing, always arguing. We just started school here at Rancho and across the valley. And in a standard kindergarten class, you'll have this kind of a list, right? Does this look familiar? This is, this is on a poster of your kindergarten classroom. And kindergartners need this. They need a list, right? They need to know you don't sneeze in somebody's face because if they don't know that on a list and are held accountable, they're gonna just sneeze in people's faces. They don't know any better. They don't know not to run in class because they're just kids and they wanna run, right? With scissors pointed at their stomachs. They, they, they'll do that, they just don't know. They need the list. They need to know how to listen. They need to know to be nice and keep your hands to yourself and don't punch another person on the top of the head. They need the lists, right? So that word weak kind of means just not fully strong, right? The word weak in Romans chapter 14 says there are some people who just need the lists. If you went to Rancho Christian High next door and there was this list on the room, we got problems. If you have to tell a 16-year-old, don't sneeze in that person's face, you've got deep problems. At some point, you move beyond the list. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying, is there are those who still need their lists. Now, it could be that they need it to feel secure about their relationship with God, the list of things that are right to believe, the list of things that are right in terms of our behavior and our choices and, and all that. There are some people who need that. There are also some people that just have it because it's their tradition. They've always been taught these lists, and so they hold these lists, and it's kind of part of who they are. It's their identity. And the Apostle Paul later says that's not entirely bad. But there is this invitation to get beyond the list, to get beyond the arguing of what's right and wrong. That's what Jesus was trying to do, really, towards the end of his ministry. He's trying to say to the whole world, hey, listen, especially you religious types that are holding on to your commandments and your laws and your rules, you're free from that. You can grow beyond that into a much healthier, mature relationship with God and with each other. So Jesus says in Matthew 22, 37, I'm going to keep it simple. This is high-level maturity. Just focus on the love of God and loving others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that's it. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. This is exactly what was reiterated in Romans 13. Carissa masterfully took us through that last week. Just love the Lord and love your neighbor and you'll be fine. That's maturity. No lists, no rules, no regulations. The Apostle Paul gives two examples in Romans 14. Now keep in mind, he is talking to a, a, the Jewish traditionalists who have their Old Testament and Old Covenants and lists. And then he has these Roman cultured people who are kind of living on the freer side of things, right? And they are in one church. And so Paul gives them two examples. The traditionalists, the, those who followed the tenets of the Jewish scripture, held to dietary laws. Dietary laws. And these dietary laws just objectively are no fun. You read the Old Testament and you will find that you cannot eat pork in the Old Testament. Yeah, you're out. <laughs> I'm out. No bacon, I'm out. No bacon, no obey the law. Um, that's what the Romans were saying. They're saying, we're not bound to the Old 
Testament Jewish scriptures, we are following Jesus, right? And in the Old Testament, you can't have a cheeseburger. You can't mix meat and cheese, right? Out. No shrimp, no lobster, nothing that scavenges the bottom of the sea. Out on that too. Yeah, we're out, right? So the Romans are saying, no thanks. But the Jews are saying, it's in the Bible. You can't do the stuff in the Bible. And the Romans are saying, we're free in Christ. The open-minded were like, no, I don't think so. I think we're, we're free from that. The traditionalists in the Roman church... The, the Jewish cultured people, held to the Sabbath laws. If you read the Old Testament, read the Ten Commandments, it is, I think, commandment number four, you shall keep the Sabbath day holy. It's one of the big ten. And there are a ton, and I mean probably hundreds of sub-laws under that fourth commandment about how exactly to observe the Sabbath. It is a Saturday you do not work on a Saturday. You do not cook on a Saturday. You do not walk more than a few steps on a Saturday. You do no chores on a Saturday. You do not exercise on a Saturday. You do nothing on a Saturday except for honor the Lord. It is a special day of worship on Saturday. That's always been the way it is. And the traditionalists are saying, we are going to keep it. They are Jewish by culture, they are Jewish by religion, they have their Jewish scripture, the Old Testament, and they are following it. And the Romans were mocking them, we're free from that, they're more open-minded, right? And they're saying, yeah, well, I think God intended us to just rest and not overwork and enjoy our rest by His grace, and they're more open-minded. We don't have to follow the letter because we got the heart of it. And the Jews were like, no, it's the letter of the law, it's in the Bible, you've got to obey it, right? And the Apostle Paul was saying, hey, listen, these two factions for a lot of reasons, are fighting. I mean, listen, the other day I was uh, in a drive-through at Chick-fil-A on a Sunday wondering what the heck is going on. <laughs> it was about 10 minutes before I realized I'm the stupidest person on the earth, the only one who forgot that Chick-fil-A rests on Sunday. Now, it's not the Sabbath, but they are choosing by their, I think, Southern tradition to not work on a Sunday. That's their Southern tradition, and it's their choice. I have nothing to do with it. I did judge Chick-fil-A for shutting down on a Sunday for a little bit. I looked like an idiot. <laughs> Somebody actually came up to my window. You know they're closed on Sunday. I am very embarrassed about this. But okay, Chick-fil-A, based on their religious tradition, chooses not to work on a Sunday. It's not the Sabbath, but you know, they have a tradition that they're keeping. Who am I to judge Chick-fil-A more than the five minutes I was quite angry, right? It's not my position. It's not my position. Romans 14, 5 and 6 puts it this way. Now, get the beauty of this. Two factions fighting. Traditionalist, open-minded, fighting about these details. Some think that one day is more holy than the other. And he's like, yeah, you Jewish people over there, you think uh, Saturday's pretty cool. While others think every day is alike. Yeah, there's you Romans over there, you're free. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor Him. In other words, Romans... Chill out, let them do their thing on Saturday. What's the big deal? Why fight about it? And Jewish cultured people, okay, listen, you're, you're Jewish people. You've got your Jewish scripture. You worship on a Saturday, big deal. Don't harass the Romans. They're not Jewish. That's not their scripture, right? Let them worship whatever they want. Not whatever they want, whenever they want. <laughs> Likewise, those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. You see what Paul is doing? He's the referee in the middle saying, appreciate the Jewish traditions. For them, it's beautiful. Not for you, but for them, it's beautiful. Jews respect the Romans and, and their freedom. They're honoring God in their culture, in their way. 
Don't harass each other. Learn to get along. Learn to get along. Accept one another, too. Let God be the judge. Let God be the judge. Romans 14, 10. Why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, some of you are a little bit nervous right now. It's like, ah, that feels like old, con- old condemning Christian religion. Walk with me here for a minute here. The Apostle Paul is not threatening us with God's judgment. What he's doing is saying, don't judge each other. That's the whole point. Don't judge each other because we don't report to each other. We report to God. We're not accountable to each other. We're accountable to God, right? So the Apostle Paul is saying, why judge each other when we're going to stand before God? Our uh, tech team, uh, very cool people that tend to be very funny. Uh, right before you enter the tech booth, you will come across this sign. I just took this picture this morning. <laughs> you can leave right there. You see it right in the front. And it's meant to be funny. It's meant to be, hey, listen, the old school way is to say, Jesus is looking, he's going to catch you, and he's watching every little thing. What the tech booth is saying is, don't jack with our stuff. <laughs> Jesus is watching. It's meant to be kind of, kind of a joke. What Paul is doing here is he's not saying, hey, listen, Jesus is watching every move, and one day you're going to get it. You're going to get punished for every sin. God does not look at our sin. Our sin is forgiven, crucified with Christ. We know our standing with God. He does not look at us as sinners. He doesn't view us by our sin. That is done, forgiven by his grace. But we will give an account for what we've done. We will give an account for what we've done. Romans 12, uh, 14, 12 says this. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. Now, before you freak out and before you go back to the 1980s and 90s with this image of a 200-foot Jesus on a throne showing your sins before 20 billion people, that's not what's going on here. That is not what's going on here. What's going on here is simply this. God gave us this life to live. God gave us this life to live. God wants us to do some good in this life. He wants us to live well. He wants us to treat others well. He wants us to be kind. He wants us to be selfless. He wants us to be loving. So he sends us out into this world and he says, hey, you've got free will. You live your life. You make your choices. I love you. I want you to know my love. I want you to live a life of love to other people. And when it's all said and done, we'll have a little chat, right? Uh, I was at Rancho Christian's football game on Friday in the desert, 107 degrees, awesome. We got a good win, first game of the season. It was exciting. I loved watching our coaches because when our kids are coming off the field, you know, the drive is done. Kids are coming off the field. They're running because they're supposed to. Coaches are walking on the field. Kids are running out. For the kids that did well, they executed their position well. They did their job. Everybody got a low five, low five, low five. For the kids that didn't quite do what they were supposed to do, like you, 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 right, (laughs) right? And the coaches, uh, or the kids come around the coach and the coaches say, hey, listen, this, 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 and just kind of tweaking, giving an account for what they've done. When we get off the field, you know what I mean by that? Dead. When we get off the field, you know, running, at some point, Jesus is going to come over here. I, I hope, let's say, I don't know, 18,000th year in eternity, Jesus finally gets to me, and I hope when he brings me over. He's going to give me a little low five. I, I hope, hey, good job on this, 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 and this, but we do have some things to address. And I just kind of imagine, you know, him putting his arm around me and saying, yeah, this little attitude, this little thing, this whatever, how you spoke here, and probably could have done a little bit better. Are we good? All right, we're good. To me, that's the giving an account. 
God loves us. He created us. He puts us on the field. We're living our life, right? Hopefully a lot of us, most of us, hopefully all of us are trying our best to be good people, trying to follow Jesus well, trying to love people well. When we get off this field and we see Jesus, there's going to be an account. It's not this condemning whatever, this brooding, you did this, showing your sins for the world. No, it's about a little chat with Jesus who gave us this life to live. Where do we do well? Low five. Where do we need, did, you know, could have done better, a little arm around the shoulder, let's talk. So when it comes to judging each other, do you realize the audacity that we put ourselves in the seat of Jesus when we do that? When we judge another person, we're putting ourselves in the seat of Jesus, as though they're accountable to us. Are you accountable to me? No. So when you share an opinion, I'm gonna take it as an opinion. <laughs> Thanks for your opinion. I appreciate you sharing that. If you wanna light me up, I might say, maybe I'm not accountable to you, right? Not in a flippant way, not, but when we start judging each other harshly and we're calling each other out and lighting each other up online and sending harsh emails or whatever it is, we put ourselves in the seat of Jesus. Jesus is the coach who calls us off the field and gives us a low five or puts his arm around his shoulder. We are accountable to him, not to each other. So stop judging. And I'm telling you, oh my gosh, church is the judgiest place on earth. That's why so many people don't wanna come anymore. It's the judgiest place on earth. Are they gonna judge me for how I look? Are they gonna judge me for how my kids behave? Are they, they gonna judge me for words that come out of my mouth? Where are they gonna get me today? And if they're not gonna say it, they're gonna look, they're gonna look it, right? Gossip just flies in church, right? Did you hear, did you hear, did you hear? Oh, prayer requests. Five surveys are 82.5% gossip. Oh, let's have a prayer request. So-and-so struggling, let's pray. It's just, that's church, it's judgment and gossip. And people are like, I'm out, I am out. I found this image yesterday, don't be a nitpicker. <laughs> just picking at nits, picking at nits, just you know, looking at the fault, looking at the fault. Oh, there's a fault, there's a fault, there's a fault. It's like, stop, stop, you're just done, stop. I'm not accountable to you. Third, look out for each other. Accept each other, don't judge each other, and look out for each other. Romans 14, 13, let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fail. So yes, we have different perspectives. Yes, we have different backgrounds. Yes, we can stop judging each other, but beyond avoiding judgment, let's live in a way that really looks out for each other. I'll give you a couple of examples here. Um, we have got uh, Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery has a lot of people who are struggling, and some of them are struggling with addictions. And so some of them are struggling to get out of alcohol. And so they're trying to escape an alcohol addiction with all the love and support and care that we can give them on Thursday nights. As a result, we don't serve mimosas here after church. Would I love to serve mimosas after church? <laughs> Probably, right? But we're not going to do that. Why do that, right? Are we free to serve mimosas after church? Well, I'm telling you, if they were free to serve real wine for communion, probably free to serve mimosas after church, right? There's no prohibition against alcohol in the Bible. None. It's just not even in there. Yet in today's day and age, and really throughout history, a lot of people struggle with alcohol addiction. So we're just not going to serve mimosas out there, Right? It's a choice we're making to look out for each other. Are we free to do it? Yes. Should we do it? Probably not. We're looking out for each other. 
Romans 14, 7 says, listen, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but a living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we are free from all these laws and rules about whether we can eat this or whether we can drink this. The Apostle Paul is clear, we're free from all of it. We're free from all of those lists. We're free from all of those rules. In fact, what he says in Romans 14, 22, he says, blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they decided is right. I'm gonna read that again. Blessed, happy, joyful are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. Some of us do not see a prohibition against alcohol in the Bible. We see some cautions in there about getting, you know, blitzed out of your mind. Uh, that's clear in there. Do not be drunk with wine. That's not helpful, right? The Bible is very clear about doing things that are helpful, but there's no prohibition against alcohol in there. So some of us have decided, guilt-free, that drinking alcohol is right. There's nothing wrong with that. Blessed are you. Some of you don't have that freedom, and some of you shouldn't have that freedom. That's your journey. But if that's you, don't judge people who are free. And if you're free, don't judge people who are saying, listen, I'm telling you, it's better that I don't drink alcohol. Okay, that's great. Can we fight about it? Can we light each other up about it? Could we throw, I mean, absolute hell at each other because, oh, you're wrong and you're wrong and this is horrible. But can we serve each other? Can we say, yes, we have the freedom to serve mimosas, but we're going to choose not to because that could hurt somebody, right? Galatians 5.13 says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Paul is saying to those who are Roman cultured, listen, do not take a bacon cheeseburger with shrimp on it into the Jewish part of your church. Don't do it. Why would you do that? Because I'm free and because I can. But that's not beneficial to them. You're just going to tick them off and you're going to hurt them. You're actually going to harm them. You're going to offend them. Well, they shouldn't be offended because I have freedom. Well, then you're not a mature person. Mature people look out for each other. And if what we're going to do in their presence is going to offend them, then we're not going to do it in their presence. We can enjoy in other environments, but, you know, we're not going to do it in front of them. Romans 14, 23. If you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you're sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you're not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you're sinning. This is going to really mess with people. He just got through saying, if I've decided it's right, I'm not sinning. That's the freedom side. Then he says, if you're a traditionalist who believes doing it is a sin, then it's a sin. That means it's Romans 14, don't hate me, it's Romans 14. For this person, it's a sin. For this person, it's not, based on conscience. How does that sit? Traditionalists, you're, you're not liking that. And I get it, because you think the rules should apply equally for everybody. You freedom people are saying, well, why do I have to be careful with those people? If they decide it's a sin, why does that have to bother me? Because we want you to be kind, because we want to serve each other and love each other, right? And then finally, let's put unity first. Let's put unity first. Romans 14, 19. So then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Try to build each other up. What if traditionalists and the open-minded would change their mind from, well, the way I do it is right and they should get on board with my plan. Instead of that, which I totally understand, Instead of that, how about we embrace each other and say, you know what, the traditionalists, 
I'm going to celebrate them. They keep us grounded. They keep us rooted in history. They keep us from going too crazy too fast, right? They keep this place well-grounded with some solid foundation under our feet. And then the traditionalists can look at the open-minded and say, celebrate them. They move us forward. They have unlocked some things in the course of church history that we'd still be stuck in. I mean, let me give you the most obvious example. The Protestant church, much of it funded slavery, funded it, and pointed to Bible verses to fund slavery. You know who got us out of that tradition? Open-minded people who looked at the pages of Scripture in the life of Jesus and thought, I don't think slavery is good. And, and then moved the church forward. If it wasn't for our open-minded churches, we'd be stuck in some terrible things, right? Can we celebrate each other? It is so hard to do. Unity first begs the question, is unity more important than conviction? I have this discussion a lot with people as the church tends to fight about this and this. Sometimes people who promote unity are fired at from both sides because both sides say, yes, but it's the truth here and the truth here, and shouldn't we be seeking the truth on both sides? And both sides can point to Bible verses, and both sides point to Jesus. I think what the Apostle Paul is saying is the same thing Jesus said, and that is, yes, we should seek unity even above conviction. It's a tough one. The way I would put it is this. Never compromise that Jesus is Lord. Jesus first, Jesus-centered. He's the full expression of God. We follow Jesus. He's the Savior of the world. We look at Jesus. We're not going to compromise on that. We're also not going to compromise that our relationship with God is based on the grace of God alone, through Jesus alone, received by faith alone. We're not going to compromise on that. Pretty much everything else, the traditionalists and the open-minded people are going to disagree at times. I think we could be a church family based on those two things. We follow Jesus it is grace alone, through Christ alone, received by faith alone. The rest of it we're going to learn humbly. The rest of it we're going to grow. The rest of it we're not only going to tolerate each other, but we're going to accept each other and we're going to celebrate each other. And we're going to thank God that there are different people in this church because I got a lot to learn from you. You got a lot to learn from me. And together we're going to express the fullness of Christ. Final verse and we're done, John 17, 23. This is what Jesus prayed right before the cross. Some have called this passage the holy of holies in the Bible. We have an open view to the Son of God praying to the Father, pouring out his heart minutes before his crucifixion. This is his final plea to God. Jesus says, I am in them, my church, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. You know what Jesus is saying here? The only way the world is going to know the love of God is if they see it in us. I'm going to repeat that one more time. Jesus, right before the cross, prayed to his Father. The only way the world is going to know the love of God is if they see it in us. And you know what the world is seeing right now when they look at the Christian church in America? Hate, accusations, judgment infighting. So is there any surprise that the church has lost one-third of its members in America in 20 years? And then can we do something different? Instead of camping on our side, we've got the truth, this is the way, and we shove it down everybody's throat, and we accuse everybody else of every possible evil, 
Instead, can we look to Jesus and the grace of God through Jesus and say, we're gonna learn to love each other. Is that possible? And here's a weird one. Do you know who has the power to answer the prayer of Jesus? He's praying to his father. I pray that they would be one as we are one so the world will know that you sent me and love me. Who has the power to answer the prayer of Jesus? We do. We can answer the prayer of Jesus or not by how we love one another, by how we accept one another, by how we celebrate one another. Conservatives in here, you're sitting next to a progressive, they're close. Progressives in here, you're sitting next to a conservative, they're close. You don't know it because that's not why we're here. We're not here to push one view or the other. Traditionalists, you are sitting next to somebody who's open-minded. Open-minded people, you are sitting next to a traditionalist and I would urge us to love that reality, to embrace that reality, to make some friends, decide to love each other so that this world could see love in action through us and know that the love of Christ is real. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we uh, thank you for the love that you have for us through Jesus. You love us unconditionally. You love us despite our flaws, our failures. You love us completely by your choice, by your will. And you've proven that through Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. And here we are as a family of faith and we live in a culture that is deeply and bitterly divided, particularly the Christian church. And we are retreating to our camps and migrating to places that are comfortable and the same. God, for this church, in this community, could we be the kind of church that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of your spirit, imagined? that both the traditionalists and the open-minded could be in one place, not just tolerating, but celebrating each other, learning together and expressing the full love of Jesus. We accept his love, we accept his forgiving grace, help us to share that with each other and to prove to the world that you and your love through Christ are real. In his name we pray, amen.